All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our church. If this is your first time here. My name is Thomas. I am one of the pastors at this church. And our, our brother Shim, he is our college director. And uh, don't, don't mind him. Uh, he has a lot on his mind these days, a lot of changes in his life. And he's, uh, you feel an extra glow in him. Just a big announcement with our brother Shim that I want to share on behalf of, of our brother. Uh, next week, he's going to be preaching for the first time at our church on Sunday in person. So we look forward to that. Uh, he preached virtually, uh, but he was a, an intern for our church for a while. And then right when the internship tag got removed, uh, we, COVID happened. And so he uh, got to preach virtually in front of people. But, you know, obviously it's a little bit different in person. So please uh, pray for this brother if, if you're a member of our church. And we look forward to hearing this brother uh, preach to us next Sunday. Uh, also, again, I do want to reiterate for all of you who are coming to our welcoming lunch. We really look forward to that. We want to bless you and welcome you and help you to meet uh, members of our church, leaders in our church. And if you are never heard of our welcoming lunch, this is your first time here and you're like, there's a welcoming lunch, uh, please feel free to go to the welcoming table and you're welcome to join us today if you want a free lunch and you want to know just what this church is about. Um, and it's a great way for also for those of you looking to get plugged in. Uh, we do have this thing at our church called community groups. Uh, we offer membership. And if you just want to know what those things are and how to even get plugged in in those channels, uh, that welcoming lunch is a great way to find out. And so this is your very first time here, though. Uh, we want to welcome you. And we've actually been going through a sermon series in the book of Nehemiah, a short Old Testament book that's, uh, that we've been going through for a while. And the reason why we've been going through that book is it's a story about how God regathers his people, restores them, and renews them, which we thought was an appropriate matching theme for our church, where we regathered recently since uh, the pandemic opened up. Uh, and we're, we're looking for restoration and renewal. And we've been spending about nine weeks so far in the book of Nehemiah. There have been 12 chapters that we've covered. And today is the final chapter. Today is the last day we go through the book of Nehemiah. And so with, after this, we will be concluding the series. And we look forward to a couple of series ahead that we'll preview next week. But if you have your Bibles, if you turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. And if you don't have your Bibles, it will be on the screen. But uh, I, I am going to be referring to the passages a lot. So it would be helpful if you opened your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. And because this is a long chapter, we're going to actually read through chunks of it. So I'll be skipping around. So don't be surprised to say let's skip down here. And uh, that's, that way we're going to be able to see the conclusion of this book in a succinct way. So Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse 6. We're going to start in verse 6. And so if there with me, I'll read out loud. You can follow along. Here, starting in verse 6. While this was taking place, I, me, Nehemiah, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tide of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. Skip down to verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. 
and I warned them on the day when they sold food. If you could skip over down to verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and all sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. And now, lastly, skip down to verse 30. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. This is a reading of God's word. Have you ever started a TV series that started off with so much promise, but it ended with such great disappointment? I know I have, too many times to count. I remember starting the show called How I Met Your Mother. People told me it's such a great show, you should watch it. It's very insightful, culturally engaging. And it was all a show about how you met your mother, according to these, with these kids, and it was so disappointing. The season was great till the last episode, and I won't spoil it, but it just wasn't good. Ruined the whole show. Someone else recommended a show called Dexter to me. Saying there's a great show called Dexter about the serial killer who kills serial killers, and it's amazing. Started watching it, it was amazing until the last season. When that happened, and the last season took place, just ruined the entire show for me. Perhaps most famous, the most famous bad ending is a TV show called Game of Thrones. Controversial whether Christians should watch it or not, but what's not controversial was how bad the final season was. People tell me all the time, that show had eight seasons, but it should have ended at season seven. And the reason why is because that last season apparently undid everything that seasons one to seven did. And it was so frustrating for people. Just like it's frustrating for any of you if you've seen a show and the ending was just horrible. Because you invested so much time in the show. So many of your weeks, so many of your hours, so much of even your care into this long TV series. And for it all of a sudden to be ruined with a disappointing ending. It really just kind of undoes and unravels all the investment that you made. The reason why I bring this up is because we see something similar going on in the book of Nehemiah, in Nehemiah's life. See, Nehemiah, he was a guy who was living great in Persia. He, was, he wasn't in Jerusalem. He was living in, in the nation of Persia as a cupbearer. And what happened was he, he actually heard in chapter 1 that the city of Jerusalem was in ruins. The people were in shambles. And so if you remember back in chapter 1, he traveled all the way back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the city and to rebuild the people. So in chapter 2, it was all about him traveling, gathering people, going, let's do something. Let's not let God's city be ruined. And in chapters 3 to 7, it was all about rebuilding the wall, setbacks, rebuilding the wall, setbacks, long journey. But finally, chapters 8 to 10, the walls were completed. The people gathered together and they recommitted themselves to the Lord. 
And in the previous two chapters, chapters 11 to 12, they actually had this huge dedication ceremony, dedicating to the wall, kind of like a church opening. If you just bought a building, we're here, we think the Lord is faithful. That's kind of what happened in chapters 11 to 12. And what's interesting is in chapter 12, there's a perfect place to end this series, a perfect place to end the book of Nehemiah. In chapter 12, verse 43, this is what it says. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. What a great place to end that story. Where the temple is restored, the wall is built, the people are rejoicing as well. That's the perfect place to end Nehemiah. Except, the problem is, Nehemiah does not end in chapter 12. If you've seen a Marvel movie, you always know there's a post-credit scene, right? There's always a post-credit scene that takes place at the end of the movie. Chapter 13 of Nehemiah, this is the post-credit scene. There's something important that the author wants to show us. What happened was, after chapter 12 ended, Nehemiah, he went back to Persia. His job was done. I built the wall. I built up the people. Job done. Back to Persia. I did my role. So he's back in Persia, enjoying his time in Persia. But all of a sudden, in chapter 13, what we see happens is Nehemiah, a few years have passed, and he's back in Jerusalem. He's like, let me come back. I want to come back and just see how the city is. And you'd expect for, for uh, Nehemiah, when he came back to the city, riding on his donkey, to see the city flourishing, people worshiping God, people whistling while they're working. You'd expect him to see a great city like that. But when Nehemiah comes back, he sees the complete opposite. The temple is empty. The temple they worked so hard to build. The walls are being neglected. Nobody's really caring and watching the walls. The wall, which they dedicated themselves, the vows that they made, it's being neglected. And the people, spiritually, they don't care. This law, all these prayer meetings that Nehemiah led them to, all these revivals that Nehemiah got them through, nobody seems to care. You would never thought a revival happened in this city. You see, even though God brought this people back, and Nehemiah works so hard to invest in this community, they're exactly the same like they were before. This community reverted back to their old ways. Now, why does Nehemiah end the story this way? Such a downer. Why can't they end in chapter 12 that give us some hope? But instead he said, no, we have to include chapter 13 and show how they're all back to their old selves. Why does Nehemiah show this? And the reason why I think is because he's trying to show what happens to us. This is us. Many of us, we could look back in our lives, and we went through revivals maybe. We had moments where we experienced God's presence in our life. We saw stuff where we're like, you know, I think God might be real. And yet, where are you right now? In fact, some of you, it was only two months ago, we were like, we're opening back. We're regathering. I'm never going to take church for granted again. I'm going to honor the Lord's day. I will never take for granted singing being in the presence of other people. I can't wait for that to happen. That was two months ago. Where are you at now? How are things now for you? You see, for a lot of us, we might experience spiritual renewal for a moment. But if we're honest, it's difficult to sustain that, is it not? It's difficult to keep journeying and feeling God's presence in our life and feeling spiritually alive. And so as we end the book of Nehemiah, the big question is, how can we be a people that doesn't just experience God's renewal and God's presence, but how can we be a church that continually experiences it? How can it be sustained in a community like ours? I remember I once heard a survival kit guy say, a survival guy say, you know, if he's ever lost on an island, he'd always have three things with him. He'd want to have a knife, 
a flint, and a compass. Because that will keep him going, keep him alive. And what we're going to see in chapter 13 of Nehemiah is what are three things you need to keep going, to be sustained, to make sure that you're walking in the presence of God. And these are three things that we're going to look at in the book of Nehemiah chapter 13. Three things we need. Number one, we need to grow a deeper conviction. Not just have conviction, but your conviction needs to be deep if you want to keep going, if you want to sustain in your life of faith. Number two, you need to join not just a community, you need to join a caring community. A community that cares for one another. And number three, we need to persevere with, pa- with prayerful patience. Persevere with prayerful patience. So deeper conviction, a, careful, a caring community, prayerful patience. Let's look at the first point. First, to sustain renewal in our lives, to walk the life of faith, we need to grow a deeper conviction. When Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem and he sees the people struggling, uh, in chapter 13, pretty much what we just read, there are three stories that are being highlighted. There are three different stories that, of different parts of Jerusalem that Nehemiah is reporting to us. And each story has a specific theme. Theme number one, first story, is the temple. Nehemiah first goes to the temple and he notices that at the temple it's being uh, abused, misused, and completely neglected. Look what it says in verse 7. He goes to the temple and Nehemiah says, And then I discovered the evil that Eliashab had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. So pretty much what's happening is there's a priest who oversees the temple. And there's a room in the temple that you keep all the stuff to make sacrifices and to make sure the temple is functioning. And what Eliashab does is he hears his friend Tobiah go, hey, you need a place to stay? Just stay in the temple. It's, he's like using like an Airbnb. Takes out all the sacrificial equipment and just lets him live inside a temple. You are not supposed to do that with the temple. But he doesn't care. Nobody cares. Also look at verse 10. Look what happens to those who work in the temple. In verse 10 it says... I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So the Levites are people who take care of the temple, clean the temple, make sure the temple is going well, and you need people like that for the temple to function. But how do they make a living? The people give to the Levites. The people give their food to the Levites to support them. But here, the Levites, they're not at the temple. They ran away from the temple working the farm. Why? Because nobody's paying them. Because nobody cares about the temple. So here we have a temple, which is the center of Jerusalem. The whole reason why they came back to Jerusalem that was rebuilt and celebrated. And it's empty. It's an Airbnb. Nobody cares. Number one, temple is neglected. Secondly, second story is the Sabbath. Israel, they were known throughout the nations as this weird nation that on Saturday they do zero work. They're like, they're like Chick-fil-A, right? They're, there's a day where they just close down shop. They don't do anything. They're known for that. But what happened was, as Nehemiah is touring the city, he sees it's a Saturday, everybody's working. Everybody's working. It's like going to Chick-fil-A and seeing they're open on Sundays. This is weird. And that's what happens in verse 15. Look what it says. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. The reason why he goes into such detail about the donkey and the wine and the grapes is he's trying to show that this isn't like an emergency situation, like a hurricane hit, and they're working on Sabbath. This is everyday stuff, just loading the donkey, loading wheat and grain, and it's a Sabbath, but they don't care. They don't care. The Sabbath day does not apply to this group. Thirdly, the third story that revolves around is the problem of intermarriage. Nehemiah noticed that people, they were mixing with other nations in marriage. In verse 23 to 24, it says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. 
Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah. And we said this last week, but the problem is not race here. The problem is not the fact that you're marrying somebody because they're a different race. But the problem was everyone else outside of Israel, they were polytheists. They all worshipped many gods. So to marry somebody outside of Israel meant that you were marrying somebody who worshipped different gods rather than the God of Israel. And they were specifically warned to not do this. And that's actually what's most interesting about all this. These three stories of these three struggles that Israel was going through, these are the same three issues that you saw throughout the book of Nehemiah. There's nothing new going on here. It's the same stuff. In fact, the last time Nehemiah was with the people, before he went to Persia, there was a big revival night taking place. And they were saying, hey, we're going to give ourselves to the Lord. We've, God is faithful. He built the, helped us build the temple and the wall. And they made a commitment saying we're going to follow all of God's commands. And they explained specifically, here's how. In chapter 10, verse 20 to 32, look what they say. All together in the assembly, they all said, we enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by the Moses of the servant of God and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and statutes. And here's how we're going to do it. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And the peoples of the land bring in any good or grain on the Sabbath day to sell. We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give a yearly, a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. The three things they said, we're going to do this. And they're all like, yeah, let's do it. Those are the very three things that Nehemiah points out saying they didn't do it. They're struggling with this. What happened? What happened to God's people? Didn't they have a revival? Didn't they see God work miracles in them? Why couldn't they sustain obeying God's commands? I saw an interview recently with this, uh, with a, this lady named Christine Kane. She's an Australian Christian activist. And she's best known for her work with human trafficking. And in this interview, you know, she'd been doing human, fighting human trafficking for about 13 years. And somebody asked her, you know, after doing this for 13 years, how do you stay motivated? Because it's easy to be motivated about human trafficking and fighting it for like a year or so. Or if you've seen a documentary, you're like passionate about it. But it's hard. It's hard to still be willing to be motivated to fight human trafficking. So how do you keep going, Christine? And in the interview, she says her, her, uh, her key word was passion. She says, what you need is passion to keep you going. And now here's the thing, though. Passion is not you lifting your hands and going, I love this. That's not passion. It might be a form of it, but that's not what passion is. Nor is it this personality type that's super loud and super emotional. Passion, it's something that's internal. It's something that's regulated by the spirit of God that's inside of you. And what Christine Kane said, because she's a Christian, she says this is why she thinks Christians struggle today with their faith. Because oftentimes Christians, we're not driven by passion. You know what we're driven by? The counterfeit version of passion. Hype. And there's a big difference between hype and passion. To quote her, she says in an interview, Christianity, this is an all-in thing. you got to have skin in the game. It takes your whole life. But it takes passion to keep skin in the game. And passion, it's really different to hype. Passion is internally regulated by the Spirit of God. Hype is externally motivated. A hyped up Christian says, we need the next event. We need a better song. Or like a drug addict, I need more, a bigger hit. But passion has got nothing to do with the next hit. 
it is internally regulated by the Spirit of God, despite the circumstances, to build that kind of passion, you have to have patience. When you have this category in your brain, a hyped up faith and a passionate faith, it makes sense now what's happening with the people in Nehemiah. Everything that drove the people at this time, it was all external. It was all hype. Let's go back to Jerusalem. Yeah, let's do it. And they're willing to go. Let's build the wall. Yeah, let's build the wall. Let's do it. Let's rededicate ourselves to the Lord. Let's have a revival. Yeah, let's do it. And they're all driven by these external events. But once the event was over, back to normal. Revert back to themselves. The reason why? Driven by hype. Driven by hype, not passion. And I think this struggle doesn't just explain the people in Nehemiah, but it explains our struggle. We live in a hyped-up world, do we not? We live in a world that's filled with hype. It's all about hype. It's all about the latest thing. And that tends to bleed into our faith. How many of you, when you look back at your spiritual days, when you felt closest to God, you think, oh, it's college. If I, college were the good old days. That's when I felt close to God. You, you know why you feel that way? Because your days in college, it was filled with revival nights. It was filled with cafe nights. It was filled with these big retreats. In other words, what is college? Hyped up Christian events that get you hyped up about God, all external, nothing too much internal. Not to say that's a bad thing, but that's the only thing. Who has time for that when you're older? Because you're a hyped up Christian. It's all about hyped. Some of you, you only feel alive spiritually when you go on a mission trip. When you go to retreats, I know a Christian, I remember I saw this guy, he would come to our, our college retreats, only to the retreats, never to our church. And I go, why do you only come to our retreats? He goes, I go to every church's retreat. Every church knows who I am. That's the one place I feel alive. I know one person, they're like totally like whatever is throughout the year, but they're like, but I want to go on mission, overseas mission. Why? Because something about that makes me just feel close to God, nothing else. Oh, hype. You love the hype. So many of us, we go to churches and we struggle at a church. Why do I struggle here? That church looks interesting. That church looks loud. That church looks spiritual. That church is popping. I want to go there. Why? Hype. It's all hype. And here's the thing. If your faith, that's the only way you're alive through events, through movement, through hype. Your faith is not being regulated by the Spirit. Your faith is being regulated by the circumstances around you. And this is why for so many of us it explains why we struggle in different seasons of life. When you have a new career, when you become a parent, COVID. I mean, during COVID, there was zero hype about God. Zero hype about church. Zero hype about spiritual things. And that's why for a lot of us, maybe, there was zero, zero desire for God. Where's the hype? Because we grew up in a context where it's all about hype, it's all about these moments, it's all about these events, and those moments and events drive us, move us, stimulate us. But that is not passion. That is the, that's, the antis, that's the complete opposite of passion. Hype is external, and it's helpful to spark renewal. It's helpful to start renewal. But you need a deeper conviction to sustain renewal. You need passion. And here's a question for you. Has your faith been more external than internal? Have you grown up where your faith, you realized, you know, it is banked upon the retreats. It was banked upon all the college things I used to do. How can we actually shift that? How can we shift where we don't depend on hype, but we develop passion?
my son, you guys might see him sometimes in our church running around. And if you do see him, he's always right there. Because my son, he's passionate about drums. And I don't know if you guys know, if some of you know he, he loves the drums, uh, but I don't know if you know the origin story of how he began to love drums. W- my wife and I don't play drums. What happened was, at the source, at Buena Park, we went there in the evening, and randomly we heard this music playing at the source, like this live band. And we look, and it's this revival night from this Asian church. They had this random revival night that we didn't know about. And they're all singing, and everyone's like standing, and there's lights and so forth. We're like, oh, that's interesting. And all of a sudden, our son's gone. Like, where'd he go? He ran to sit in the front row, and he's just staring at the drummer. Like, he never saw anything like that before. And I remember after that moment, as we're driving home, all he wanted to do was listen to that song that he heard, the song that was playing at that revival night. When we got home the next day, he wants to say, hey, can I see a YouTube clip of someone playing drums? Show him the drums. And that just became our routine. Every day, YouTube clips. Every day, I listened to that same song throughout the car rides all the time. And then came the big moment where a brother in our church gave him an electric drum set that he got to play. He played all the time. And when I look back, I'm like, wow, my son, he loves the drums now. But you know what? Even though it started because of that revival night, that was a spark. It got sustained through those little everyday moments of watching YouTube, of listening to the music, and of playing the drums. He didn't do it all day. He sometimes would miss out at times, but regularly, it was just a part of his ordinary life. In a similar way, if you want your faith driven not by hype, but by passion, there's no silver bullet that's going to wake you up. It's a spark, but if you want to keep that spark going, what it takes to develop a passion for the Lord is your ordinary life of communing with God, the ordinary moments of worship, in the word, praying, what that does is you're not just doing a duty, you're not just doing a checklist, you are weaning off a hype-driven faith, and you are developing a slow passion for the Lord. That's how every serious relationship is cultivated. As one author says in his book, Ordinary, he says, quote, any long-term relationship that wants to grow and be healthy, it needs those ordinary minutes, hours, days, months, and years. This is more than just enduring those moments passively. It requires engaging in intentional thought and effort as well as enjoyment. That's true also of our relationship with the triune God. And so if you want to wean off the hype, it's day by day, little by little, developing a passion for the Lord. And that's how we are sustained in our faith. That's the first thing we need. Here's the second thing we need that we see in Nehemiah. Not just a deeper conviction, but we need a caring community. We need to be part of a caring community. Notice when Nehemiah, he sees the people spiritually apathetic. He's riding on his donkey. He's seeing everybody. He doesn't just go like, oh my gosh, these Israelites, they're such, such sinners. That's why I don't join this nation. He's not doing that. He sees them. He gets off his donkey and he responds. Nehemiah does something. When he sees the temple rented as an Airbnb and the Levites are empty or gone, Nehemiah, he, gets, he does something. In verse 8 it says, Nehemiah, I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture to buy it out of the chamber. He just went to the temple, just started throwing out his lamp, his couch, his bed, just started throwing them out. That's crazy. But Nehemiah, he was so angry that he responded that way. Notice when he saw people work, working on the Sabbath. Nehemiah did not just go, all oh, these sinners. He did something. In verse 19, look what it says in 21. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors be shut, no business allowed today, and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I warned them, all the people who try to work, I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. 
church, I'm going to beat you up. Try to come here on the Sabbath. I'm going I'm to beat you up. It's crazy. And then it gets even crazier because Nehemiah, he sees all these intermarriages, people married of someone who worships someone besides Yahweh. And Nehemiah, he sees this and he goes a little crazy. Look what it says in verse 25. And I confronted those couples and I cursed them and I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if somebody was here and they're in a marriage that wasn't, wasn't lawful, breaking God's command. And I came to them going, oh yeah? That's your wife? Okay, let's go. And I just start like pounding them. Spiritual abuse, right? <laughs> Little too far. Not good. And Nehemiah, it's not in any way prescribing this, saying this is what we should do. But before you judge Nehemiah, before we judge him too hard, at least Nehemiah cares. At least he cares. Nobody else cared. Everybody saw what everyone's doing. Everyone knew the temple was empty. Everyone saw Tobiah using it as an Airbnb. Everybody saw people working on the Sabbath. Everybody saw the intermarriages. But nobody cared. Nobody cared in this community. Only Nehemiah did something. Why? Because Nehemiah, he cared about God's name. And he cared about God's people. He cared enough to do something. In fact, one commentator said, if, imagine if Nehemiah never came back. Nobody would have probably said anything. This would have just been Israel. This would have been their lives. Wouldn't it be great if we had Nehemiah in our lives? Wouldn't it be great if we had a community that could exhort us and tell us, hey, let's live for the glory of God. Let's live faithfully as Christians. Well, as many of you know, we do have a community. The New Testament tells us God gives us a community where we're supposed to belong to that gets exhorted with a bunch of Nehemiahs. It's called the local church. The local church is not just a place that we gather, but it's meant to be this community that cares for one another. That's why when you see descriptions in the New Testament, look what it says about the church. Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes to the church of Galatia, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another, church, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. James chapter 5, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that the pastor who brings him back, no, 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 whoever brings him back, a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death. That's the local church. That's what the local church is supposed to do for you. It's this place to sustain you to strengthen you, to catch you from wandering. Now, some of you might object to this going, well, I've been part of a church for a long time, and I don't feel any renewal here. The church is not a source of strength. In fact, it could kind of drain me sometimes. Why do we experience that with the church? And here's why. I heard this analogy before, and I thought it's helpful. The reason why I think modern people don't experience the church this way is because a lot of modern people, we approach the church like a gym, like a gym membership. You know a gym? You know what's fascinating about a gym? Everybody goes to a gym and they all have the same purpose, to get a good workout. We're all there for the same reason. We all want to work out, be healthy, look good, but nobody talks to each other. Have you, I mean, or if you do talk to each other, it's kind of weird. It's like, I don't want to talk to you. So what we do, we go to the gym, we sit down, somebody's next to us doing the same exercise, we just nod and we do our exercise, our own thing. And once we're done, we're done. Because your sole purpose is for me to get a good workout. And you know everyone else's sole purpose is for me to also get a good workout. They're all going there for the same individual reasons. 
You might say hello to them. You might spot them if they drop a weight, but that's it. That's the extent of what gym membership looks like. And so if somebody is not really getting muscular after a while, you don't notice, you don't care, that's not your thing. If somebody's missing because you haven't seen them in a while, you don't know, you don't care because you don't think much more than it being a gym. And that's how a lot of us view the church. The church is this place where we sit down, we're all here for the same purpose, but we look at each other, we just nod, and we worship God. Because this is what the church is. It's for me, for me to grow, for me to do well, for me to get close to God. That's how we view the modern church. And that's why the church doesn't do much for people. Because it's this individualistic gym that we are individually working out in. You know what the New Testament says the church actually is supposed to function more like? Less like a gym, but more something like this thing called CrossFit. Has there ever been a part of CrossFit? Yeah, me neither. But I researched about it. It sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. And a CrossFit gym, they don't call it a gym. They call it the CrossFit community. The CrossFit community. Everybody goes with the same purpose to work out, but they do it together. They do it together. You are part of a supportive community to help you grow and to work out your muscles. And so even though you do individual exercises, you have a group of people where if you're struggling, they all go, come on, they all support you, they all encourage you, they know when you're missing, they'll go, hey, where were you? They know when you need to take the next step in your exercise growth. When you're down, they lift you up. In fact, people after CrossFit, they're all friends oftentimes, a lot of them. They're like, this is my CrossFit community. I've never heard one person say, this is my LA fitness community. I never heard one person say that. Oh, I love my gym. I love my gym. I'm a proud member of my gym. Nobody says that. But we, they say about CrossFit. They say about CrossFit. Why? Because they're a community that cares for each other. I think that's kind of what's happening with our church. We don't care about the church. It's not something you're proud to be a part of. It's just something you go to. Individually working out. Because the church, it's not meant to function that way. It's not meant to function that way. And that's perhaps why the local church, it's not very meaningful to you. Because you're treating the church like it's a gym. It's functioning like a gym, way more than a CrossFit. Approaching it individually. Approaching where we don't care how everyone else is doing. I have a confession that I want to make. Uh, I shared this in our Bible study. So if you're in our Bible study from Ephesians, this might sound familiar. But could I share with, with you all one of my great fears of our church? They have a fear, because as we move forward, there's a fearful thing about the type of church we'll be. I know there are some Christians here, you're a member of our church. You care way more about your job and career than you do about God. You can say all you want, God is your Lord and Savior, but I can just tell talking with you, you don't really care about God. You really care about stocks. You really care about career. You really care about traveling. But when we talk about spiritual things, uh, you don't really care. I know some of you, you're, you're a member or you're a Christian here, and you're living double lives. You're living double lives. Your Saturday night looks really different than Sunday morning. Your social media looks really different than what you say on Sunday morning. You're living a double life. I know some of you, your profession of faith does not match your sexual practice. It doesn't match. You don't tell anybody, but I, I just know that that's happening in your relationship. It just does not match your profession of faith, your sexual practice. Now, here's the thing. My fear of this church is not that that's happening here. That's the church. That stuff happens. If you say we're a hospital of sinners, expect to see sin. It happens. That is not a problem at all. 
if we struggle with that here in our church, what I would say is welcome to our church. It's a group of people who are struggling in different ways. But here's my fear. Not that that's happening, but that nobody cares that's happening. If the members are here and we know people that are struggling, contradicting their faith, missing, and nobody cares, because so long as I'm worshiping, as long as I'm getting my spiritual fill, then it's all good with me, we are no longer a church. We're a TED Talk. We're a parachurch. We're just a group of people that meet on Sundays, but we are not the renewing community that people can come to to have their faith sustained. It's gone when that happens. And I get it. It's not easy. It's not easy building a community like that, but unless we actually start to do the simple thing of let's care for each other. Let's care for each other. That's when let's see what God does. What's God going to do in a community like this? Because people need this. People don't just need a gym. They need a community, more like a CrossFit, that ministers to them. Because if you're visiting, and it's been a long time since you felt alive in God, perhaps this is the shift that's needed. To not simply attend a church, Sunday to Sunday, but a community. Not just an individual workout, but a collective workout together. I know it's not easy. It's messy. You might have to check out different CrossFits. That's okay. But... Maybe small steps of how can I get more involved. That's what you need more than just being part of a good church. And members, members of our church, a lot of you have returned to our church here on Sundays, but maybe you haven't really returned as members. You're just a Sunday goer. And remember, God, he calls us not to be members that just gather and even serve. He calls us to care for the people, for the people. That's why we do the things that we do. That's why we have community groups. Community groups, is, it's tough to organize. Ask Pastor Sam. He organizes it. It's not easy. But how can we care for one another unless we actually know the people here? That's why we do that. That's why we have membership meetings. That's why we have membership. So that we could learn about one another and care. And that's why when we see struggling members, the greatest hope is that not just myself or Pastor Sam cares, but somebody in their proximity, somebody who knows them, we care. And if you see everybody start to do that, even half the people start doing that, what's God going to do to our church? It's a caring community that sustains the faith. Last thing we need, besides a caring community, deep conviction, is we need to persevere. To sustain renewal, to sustain God's presence in our lives, persevere with prayerful patience. Notice Nehemiah riding on his donkey, but oh my gosh, these people. And he goes, oh, he starts you know, hitting them and so forth. Not good, the second part. But he doesn't just hit them. What does he do? He's always praying. He's always praying throughout Nehemiah chapter 13. Verse 14, he says, remember me, oh my God, concerning this. Verse 22, remember me, this also my favor, oh my God. Verse 29, remember them, oh my God. Verse 31, remember me, oh my God. He's praying constantly in chapter 13. Nothing new. Nehemiah always prayed throughout the book of Nehemiah. But what makes chapter 13 unique is how much he prays. How much he prays. He prays half the prayers in Nehemiah. It's all in chapter 13. Because he's just praying. And I could kind of understand why. He's praying because he's thinking, oh my gosh. What, have I, what, what, what am I doing here? Lord, have mercy on me. That's pretty much what he's saying. Why did I leave Persia for this? Why did I dedicate so much of my life to these people who are back to normal as if nothing happened? Why did I dedicate so much of my heart and time into these people? He's struggling with the people. 
he probably feels like a lot of you when you see people struggling. Doesn't a lot of people, sometimes you just see them, the way they're living their lives, people you care about, and it's like, oh, Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy on me. I remember I was in a small group once where I had four guys in my small group. One thing we said is let's try to read our Bibles. Just, you know, we're Christians. So let's keep each other accountable. This guy was like the laziest guy in the world. He said he was a Christian, but he always said, hey, please pray for me that I would try to try. That was his prayer. And we'd be like, okay. So we pray for him. And he, How was it? He was like, you know, I woke up that morning and I thought about reading my Bible. I didn't, but I almost tried. We're like, good, good for you, man. Hey, the prayers are working. That's just how it was the whole year. So frustrating, very frustrating. I remember there was a sister in our, in our college ministry a few years ago, and this is, happens every once in a while with guys or girls, but it happened to be a sister in a, in a dating relationship, toxic relationship, toxic. We all told her this is toxic, it's not good for you. She's like, oh, yeah, yeah. But then one day she broke up. She's like, oh, my gosh, it was toxic. And she kind of explained how toxic it was. She said, I'm going to listen from now on. I'm going to learn my lesson. Literally a month later, dated another guy just as toxic. And it's like, oh, Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. I counsel married couples sometimes. And they don't know what the problem is with, with the, each other and their marriage. And as soon as I hear them talk, I'm like, I know what the problem is. I know what the problem is. You guys just don't listen to each other. But like, no, no, it's because of them. And it's so frustrating. And you know what? I've been doing this for 12 years, meeting with people like that. And after 12 years, you know, probably by the ninth year, probably by the third year, I was like, oh, Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. It's really easy to just give up. It's really easy. It's really easy just to not care. And be like, you know, nobody cares. Why should I care? Things aren't going to change. People don't change. The church won't change. So why even? care. It's just the way it is. And not only how we, do we feel that about each other, we often feel that about ourselves. We struggle with the same things, the same lust issues over and over again, the same apathetic issues over and over again, the same struggles over and over again, the same cycle over and over again. We can't help but think, why even bother? Why even bother? I can't change. And that's where I'm really thankful that Nehemiah, that's the whole point of the story. The whole point of the story of Nehemiah is to let you know, yeah, you're right. You can't change. If Nehemiah chapter 12, uh, Nehemiah ended on chapter 12, it will give us this hope that, yeah, we, if we just have these dedications and these recommitments, yeah, we could, then we'll be rejoicing in God. But chapter 13, thank God. It shows us this is a human condition. There's a cycle where we just don't care anymore. But thank God, not only for chapter 13 of Nehemiah, but thank God chapter 13 is not the end of the story. Nehemiah, it's meant to have that cliffhanger ending to point us to a greater ending. Because while we can't help ourselves, and even someone like Nehemiah can't help people, God promises to send somebody to help his people. Because the issue that we have is not habits, it's not trying harder, it's a, it's a sinful heart. Our hearts are messed up, and we need a new heart. And we can't change people's hearts. We can't even change our own. And that's what the gospel tells us why God sent Jesus Christ into the world. Jesus sees us in our sin. He also rode on a donkey. He watches us. He knows we failed. But instead of throwing out all of our stuff out of the home and chasing us away in anger like Nehemiah did, he chases us after us in love. He doesn't threaten to lay hands on us when we break Sabbath. But instead, he allows his enemies to lay hands on him. 
He doesn't go out and see us in our sin and beat us and pull out our hair. But instead, he's beaten for us. He's driven away for us. Even though we constantly yoke ourselves to the same struggles over and over again, Jesus Christ looks at us and tells us if you place your trust in him, he will yoke himself to you. And when you do that, even if you for your whole life can't change your own hearts and you're doing the same thing, Jesus says, I can. Give me a try. Let me enter into your life. Let me change that heart of yours. How does that happen? It's to be like Nehemiah. Come to the end of yourself going, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on me. Give your heart to the Lord and see what he does. If you've never given your heart to Christ, his mercies, are, we're told, are new every single morning. And we invite you as a church, let him come into your heart. And all you need to do is ask him, have mercy upon me, Lord. I want to follow you. And if you've already given your heart to Jesus, but you feel so far away from him, do it again. Over and over again, give your heart to the Lord so that he can change you in the ways that you can. Imagine if a church did that, where all of us came to the end of ourselves and our struggles. Because we're all caring, we're all trying, we all want a deeper conviction, and we can't. Lord, have mercy on us. What would Jesus do in our church? He would fill this place. He would start to change hearts. He would start to see a community that practices renewal. And we'll start to see the fire keep going in our church community. Let's all pray together. If I could just lead us.